Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about the Enneagram as a tool to understanding personality. On this episode, we'll be featuring our guest, Christopher Hewartz, who was first introduced to the Enneagram in the slums of Cambodia. And since then, he's trained under some of the greatest living Enneagram masters. And he now teaches the Enneagram in workshops around the world as an International Enneagram Association accredited professional. Chris is also the host of Enneagram Mapmakers podcast and best-selling author of The Sacred Enneagram, which I've read, as well as The Enneagram of Belonging. And you can follow his work at gravitycenter.com. So thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thanks so much for including me. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. And so I, what I mentioned earlier before we kicked this conversation off is that I read your book, The Sacred Enneagram, and I also heard you speak in so many other uh, podcasts, and I just loved your style. And I just thought you'd be the perfect person to introduce the Enneagram for those who are beginners and also talk a little bit more about Enneagram for those who are already uh, acclimated to, to the work. So just to kick it off for folks who are new, can you briefly describe what the Enneagram is exactly? Sure. So on a, on a real kind of surface level, people have reduced this this teaching or this tradition down to, to kind of a personality profile system. And, and essentially, if you jump on Instagram or, or sort of scroll through podcasts, you'll, you'll find that there's quite a few folks that, that only see the Enneagram as a way of understanding human character structure. But it's actually a, a lot more complex and, and, and a lot more complicated than that. And then, of course, the history um, actually sort of lets us know that the personality overlay is actually the youngest or the newest way of understanding this. I, I used to say that the Enneagram shows us our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. But I think that kind of kind of scares people off. So I, I generally try to, to start with, it shows us the nine ways that we want to be loved, the nine ways that we go about uh, getting that love, and, and the nine ways we suffer not not being loved the way that that way the, the way that we want. Beautiful, yeah, and I mean, it's really profoundly helped me understand the people in my life and also how I operate. Um, so we'll go into that a little bit later. But uh, before we talk a little bit more about the nine types, I wanted to understand a little bit more about why you chose to study this work. Sure. So I was um, formerly in an international humanitarian organization for twenty years, and um, everything was really intense in community and. We found um, things like the DISC or the Myers-Briggs or, or other things like Strengths Finders, other other profile systems like this, really helpful in terms of understanding each other and, and, and trying to work better together. And so when we came across the Enneagram, I, I think at the very beginning, we 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 really just had a, a surface level understanding of it. We kind of, you know, were cliche with people's types and and, and it was helpful enough. But, um, you know, after 20 years in that work, I... I really hit a wall. I, I burnt out and, and I was hurting myself. I was hurting and betraying my wife. I was hurting friends and, and coworkers and, and needed a break. I needed a change. And um, one of my, my mentors, teachers, and dear friends, Father Richard Rohr, was there right on time. He's a 78-year-old Franciscan friar um, in New Mexico and uh, really one of the, the early great Enneagram teachers. And, and he really just helped me go 
deeper and deeper into this as as a way of finding finding inner healing, of a way of finding compassion for myself and, and compassion for others, and and a way of really sort of starting to tell myself the truth. And it was devastating, and it and it was enthralling, and 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 it changed me. I mean, it, it changed me on a deep, deep level. Wow. So, Chris, can we actually walk through the nine types and what each of them means? And I'm love to go back to the Richard Rohr conversation a little bit later, but I think for folks who are new to the space um, and new to the Enneagrams, I think it'd be really helpful if you could just provide a high high level uh, overview of each of the nine types uh, and what they mean. Sure. So when you you talk about Enneagram types, this is one of the, the, the teachings within this tradition that does sort of point to um, the way that we we present in the world. Now, I, I used to say that I, I think we're born our type, but I think that's lazy when I say that because my sense is all of our souls are purposed. We're we're born to to bring a gift to help heal the world. And um and I think when you start to lose contact or lose touch with that gift, when you start to to forget your essence and and your innate virtue, then type or let's say personality structure or psychic structure shows up as a way of coping with that loss of contact with essence. And so in the Enneagram, um, on the drawing of it, there's a circle and there's nine points equidistant apart from each other around that circle. And they're numbered and they're numbered because numbers are, are non-judging. Now, of course, over the years, different teachers and, and authors and schools have, have attributed and assigned names to these types. And that's a helpful rhetorical device to, to remember them or to remember the energies of them. When I learned this, Father Richard sort of taught me this as fundamental needs. And so if we start at type one, um, this is sometimes called the perfectionist or the reformer. Um, this is sometimes referred to as the need to be perfect. This is a, a person who is highly principled, incredibly ethical, has a, 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 just an outstanding sort of commitment to internal and personal integrity. And, and and you see they're driven by this fear that they're somehow inherently corrupt. And, and you see this fear is is really what it keeps all of us, let's say, nine different ways treading water. And so, if the one is is afraid that they're 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 imperfect and they cannot be perfected, then of course this subconscious and unconscious motivation is going to compel them to to try to be better than they need to be. And and in fact, you you'll know this if you're a one, you you're, you're probably the best person in in your in your community. But that can be exhausting. And so, what happens is the one begins to to resent themselves because. They can never live up to their idealized notion of perfection, and and so it's a really hard hard person to be. There's a a lot of suffering that goes on in the in the mind and the heart of of somebody who's a type one. Mm, wow. So so type two is sometimes called the giver or, or the helper, um, sometimes referred to as the the need to be needed, and and type two is is in their heart center. And you learn this in the enneagram that there's three centers: there's the head, the heart, and the body. This is really where you practice your most effective discernment. This is really how you perceive and process the world. It's it's primarily either through your thoughts, your feelings, or your intuition, or your instincts. But two is the first type that shows up in the heart center. And, and so they're heart forward. They're, they're self-sacrificing. They're, 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 they're kind. They're, they're, they're generous. They're, they're loving. I mean, they're just it's just all of this nurturing energy sort of distilled in, into the soul of, of a human who, who knows what everybody in their life needs better than what better better than we know we need it better than 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 we could care for ourselves they're taking care of us and 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 so you see what happens though is they begin to um 
externalize this care, this concern, this love, and and they and they feel guilty. Let's say taking care of themselves or, or asking for what they want or, or receiving the, the the good gifts that we try to give them. And this is because there's a fear in the type two that they're somehow disconnected from love or or that they themselves will will be loveless or unlovable. And so you start to see this. You start to see in nine different ways. there's there's a compulsive fear that drives us. There's a compulsive fear that that sort of shapes how we show up or or how our personalities develop or how we present in the world. But man, twos, they're just incredibly generous, incredibly kind, um just just nurturing, nurturing souls. So type three is is sometimes referred to as the achiever or the perfectionist. This is the sometimes referred to as the need to succeed. And and when I'm running around this color wheel of types or, or human character structure, it's usually at type or point three that I, I I get a little arrested and that like a lot of compassion starts to pour forward from me. Because for for threes, they're they're and and we all are, of course, in nine different ways. But for threes in particular, there's this this deep sense of misunderstanding. There's this this deep loneliness. Threes, just like the twos, are in their heart center. But but we understand that threes may be the most disconnected from their own heart. There's this kind of hollow sense of of being. And and so if it looks like a three is ambitious, if it looks like a three is successful, if it looks like a three is is driven. Then it really is not fundamentally about winning or losing success or failure for the three. It's always been about their relationship to value, and ultimately the relationship that they perceive value has to love. Right. So as little kids, threes just like all of us wanted to be loved, but in a sense they felt like they had to earn it. They had to make themselves more valuable so that they could be more lovable. And you see, this is the lane. This is the addiction. This is the the, the pathway for the threes. They, they they swapped out as little kids affirmation, uh, attention, reward for love. And, and, and those things became sort of easy for them to attain and get. And so, yes, like as, as young adults and into their adulthood, that quote unquote need to succeed sort of shows up. But when a three is honest with themselves and, and they kind of back away from it, it, it really is, like I said, that this fear that they somehow do not have inherent or intrinsic value makes them less lovable. And so to become more valuable makes them lovable. The This the shows up socially in, in how they actually make everything they touch more remarkable, more valuable, better. I mean, they're, they're, they're incredible leaders and, and they often lead from behind. They're, 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 they're often really low key and understated. And, and, and it surprises us how, how competitive they can be. But, you know, they're, they're, they're first and foremost competitive with themselves, always wanting to make themselves a better person. And you see, this is a pattern and this happens to all of us. What we internalize and perfect, we externalize. And, and so this is part of how the three shows up. Incredibly loyal, incredibly faithful, but, but conflicted and, and, and often feels really, really isolated and alone. Hmm. It's so interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, all this time I, I was pretty sure that I'm an eight, but now that you're talking about the three, <laughs> I'm like, you know, there's a part of me that also feels like there's never, it's never enough, like how much mm-hmm. productivity and efficiency. Um, so it's interesting. Like, I think that a lot of people can probably self-identify with multiple types. I think that'll probably mm-hmm. come up for them as they navigate through this. Um, but I think, you know, and then we could talk about this at the end, like what it means to, really know that this is your number and this is your type, um, you know, what, what it feels like, I guess, for people. Yeah. Well, I, so eights, 
sevens and threes, they, they share a social style in, in one of the, 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 the triads. It's called a Hornavian group. And these are the aggressive or, or assertive styles. So they'll, they'll typically mistype, actually. Mm. If you're a three, seven, or eight, that's going to be a common mistyping sort of triad. Super interesting. But, huh. Yeah, and we can crack those open, too. I mean, I mean, this thing just gets nerdy and wonky and, and amazing because it's, <laughs> it's, it's not so cliche that there's only nine types of people in the world. It's like one of my friends is like, how convenient would that be? But <laughs> it's like there's nine, let's say, sort of bases that we sort of operate from. And then, you know, there's a, a way to, to sort of stretch these nine types to actually 108 impressions of type. So. Wow. I love it. <laughs> wow, so interesting. Oh, yeah. And, All right. Okay. So type four. Yeah. So type four, um, man, poor fours are, are, I think, kind of bullied the worst in, in, in the books and the literature because this is the individualist. This is sometimes called the tragic romantic. This is the need to, to be unique. This is a, a person whose who's basic fear is tethered to this sense that I don't know who I am. I, I don't have a, a routine in, in the origin of my identity or sense of self. So I'm on this painful journey of searching out who might I be and, and who could I become. And, and what happens here is, is is those who are dominant in type four? They're 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 looking for substance and and meaning and and beauty and everything because it's as if they could find it outside of themselves. Then 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 it would be like pulling on that that thread of a sweater to 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 find it inside themselves as well. So fours make everything they touch beautiful. It, it, it's it's remarkable the the sort of depth of aesthetic that that their perception sort of allows them to celebrate. But you see, this is because there's that ache inside that there's nothing remarkable or beautiful about them. And, and and I used to sort of describe it like this. They're they're walking around showing everybody a mirror. Look how beautiful you are. Look how amazing you are. Look how how incredible you are. And then they're trying to see those same things about themselves by looking in the back of the mirror that isn't reflective and and it causes this deep sadness and this ache, this this perpetual unsatisfied longing. Now, Ones, fours, and sevens, these are the Enneagram's frustrated idealists, right? And and ones idealize goodness and perfection in a way that they'll never be able to live into. Fours idealize meaning, beauty, substance, depth, and 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 they have it and they are a source of it, um, but they 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 they're somehow disconnected from it. If you look at the drawing of the Enneagram, the fours sit at the bottom of the circle. And this is the third of, of the heart types. And so it's almost as if they're also carrying the emotional weight of the entire community, the entire Enneagram. And that's a heavy burden for them to carry. And then finally, it's it's important to know this if you're four, if you have fours in your life, they're they're one of the abandonment or withdrawn types. And so you know, their 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 sort of energy is a, a withdrawing or a stepping back or or a moving away. And, and what we don't understand about fours is they they're they're not sort of checking out on us. They're they're not sort of leaving us. This is a a, a quiet, unconscious or subconscious test, which is well, we also get in line with everybody else who's abandoned in the four. And when they move back and when they step back in relationship from us, well, we step towards them and prove that that actually we're committed. We're, we're staying in the game. We're, 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 we're here for the long haul. And so don't misunderstand that in relationships with the four, because what it does is it just creates this perpetual ache of, of, of sadness and, and loneliness and, and isolation that, that, that many, many fours suffer from. Mm. 
So fascinating. I have a four in my life, so I'm going to go reach out to her <laughs> right after mm. this. <laughs> and here's the thing. Fours, um, fives and nines, these are, are probably the most boundaried of the type. So even when you move towards them, because they're all the sort of detached and withdrawn types, even when you move towards them, you still have to learn to honor their boundaries. And that's just mm. a, a tricky dance. But, you know, all relationships are, are in a sense, a, a complicated dance. Wow. So, so fives. Um, I love fives. It, it, it's surprising, but so many of my closest and, and longest friends um, are dominant in type five. And and that surprises a lot of people because fives um, are are pretty isolated. They're 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 way up in their head center. So this is the first of the head types, and you know these these folks are kind of they, one of my friends says they live in their mind palace. It's it's where they go to create stability and security as a gift that they're trying to offer the people in their lives, their friends, or partners, or communities. Fives. Um, are sometimes called the investigator, um, the observer. This is sometimes referred to as the need to understand. And, and these folks are are they're, they're brilliant. This this doesn't mean maybe that they get the best grades, but it means that they will solve any problem presented. And it, it's it's remarkable what they're able to do in their minds. But you see, they're 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 often misunderstood because when they sort of evacuate into their head space, when they sort of withdraw and, and go up into that sort of cerebral sort of cave, they, they really do sort of self-isolate. Now, the bummer here is there's these emotional passions that all nine types have. And and, and in the 70s and 80s, when, when it was primarily um, Catholics who were, were teaching the Enneagram, they, they really referred to these passions as as sin tendencies or the, the shape of our tragic flaws. And, and I actually think that kind of misses the point, right? This, this passion that we all have, and there's nine different passions, it, it's, it's really the evidence of suffering that we really have lost contact with our truest selves, with, with our essence. And, and for the five, that passion is called avarice, right? It, it's, 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 it's referred to as greed. But you see, the fives actually aren't greedy people. The fives are, are, are really selective people. And so when the five chooses a friend or a partner, and, and, and yes, fives will, will, will typically partner up later in life because they really want to sort of suss out and explore all of their options. But when a five chooses you, you, you may not know a more generous and present person. It's just that there's only going to be one or two or three people in the life of the five that they choose. And, and then how the five shows up in these relationships is, I'll, I'll help you solve problems. I'll, I'll chase down answers for you. If there's a, a question you you can't seem to, to, to suss out or figure out, I'm, 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 I'm excellent at that, but just give me some time and just give me some space. Mm. Now the six, right? Five, six, and sevens, these are the head types, right? These are really the great forecasters of, of humanity. And if fives are forecasting solutions, then sixes are, are threat forecasters, right? This is sometimes called the loyalist or the skeptic. This is sometimes referred to as the need to be secure. These are the folks that sort of show up in our lives as the worst case scenario thinkers, <laughs> contingency planners. And it's a bummer to be a six because that's a really hard place to live in. That's a really anxious mind to have to navigate. But you see, this is actually how the sixes are trying to show that they love us, that they're going to go to the worst place as possible, and they're going to find ways out, work around solutions, that this is how they're going to create stability and security in, in their lives and in their relationships. So if you're a six, like, 
you're often misunderstood. You're often misunderstood as 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 a pessimist. You often probably recognize that your communication style leads with a lot of concerns. You you probably recognize that that you you find consensus to be very comforting. And, and this is because five or sixes don't trust themselves. Sixes actually look outside themselves for validation for external authority. Right before pandemic, when we were were doing workshops all the time, and I sort of get to point six or type six and and I'd say, hey, any sixes in the room, you know, there'd be a half a dozen to 15 people who kind of tentatively raise their hand. And then during one of the breaks, somebody would come up and say, hey, look, I've taken two or three of the tests. A couple of my friends think I'm a six and the tests say I'm a six, but I don't know. What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know you, man, but you sound like a six. Like <laughs> the six actually becomes a source of courage and and faith when they align with their truth. But until they get there, there's a a lot of second guessing. There's a lot of doubting. There's a a lot of anxiety. And what the six convinces themselves of is this is how they'll stay safe and this is how they'll keep other people safe. But really, another way that we're just, you know, tragically misunderstood as as human beings. Now, the seven, this is the the, the third of the head types. And so if the five is, is, is forecasting solutions, if the six is threat forecasting, then the seven is forecasting the, the possibility that, that freedoms would be diminished or, or restricted. So the seven is sometimes called the enthusiast. This is sometimes referred to as the need to avoid pain. This is up and out energy. These folks are, are are dreamers they're curious they're imaginative they 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 they're the fastest thinkers incredible problem solvers but they're they, they have a, a problem with the present right so they're future oriented and in that future orientation what they're essentially doing is they're running from the pain that's contained within their own heart and 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 so they're disconnected from their heart and you know this emotional passion that's that's attributed to type 7 is referred to as gluttony and it's not that they eat the whole pint of ice cream or the whole pizza. It's it's a gluttony of overusing anything as a distraction that brings them pleasure so that they don't have to face their grief or their sorrow. And, and so that future orientation actually keeps them away from the pain in their present. I, I, I joke around that sevens go on vacation to plan their next vacation because it's just always what's next. It's always what's next. It's always what's next. They're, they're incredible forecasters that sort of predicting trends, they can kind of see around the bend, right? I, I joke around that the the communication style here, it's like playing a game of shoots and ladders. It's never a straight line. It's stories that don't get finished. It's punchlines that sort of, they start with the punchline and they don't tell the rest of the joke. It's, it's always illustrated. It's always energetic. It's always imaginative. And, and, and look, they're on vacation perpetually from their own pain. And when we're with them, we feel like we're on vacation from our pain because they're super fun to be around and there's such levity and and, and such lightness and, and such joy. Um, but really for the seven, the, the hard work here is to get in touch with your pain and, and, and realize that your pain tells you the truth, that your, your, your pain is a way of connecting with with love and that your pain is is really the only thing that's going to grow you up and that's going to keep you grounded. But that's hard. That's hard for all of us, but but really, really feels impossible for a lot of sevens. Yeah. All right. So eights. Um, I identify as as an Enneagram type eight. And over the years, like there's this kind of sense that if you're an eight, you have to almost lead with an apology, like, hey, sorry, I'm an eight. <laughs> because eights are like so intense. They're, they're they just put the too muchness 
in everything. So the bummer is the name that that's attributed to the eights is the challenger. Sometimes call them the contrarian. And, and this is sometimes referred to as the need to be against. And, and so this is the person who just throws the counterpoint in your face, who loves to, to be a little combative and, and playful with it. Um, they're, they're the incredible sort of initiating energy of the Enneagram. So they hate to be slowed down. They hate to be interrupted. They hate to be stopped. But there's this exterior misperception that eights are, are super tough, that we just have really thick skin and, and that nothing's going to hurt our feelings while we are sort of stomping on everybody else's. And if you kind of step back from this and and really examine and evaluate it, what you you learn about the eights is their inner child, in a sense, had to grow up too soon. There was a kind of acceleration of their innocence or, or part of their tenderness. And, and, and so in coping with that on an egoic level, they did begin to sort of project protective energy. They did begin to sort of project this kind of toughness in the world. And yes, these little fights that the eights pick um, became a test. And it became a test of if I use inappropriate language, if I'm foul, if I'm rude, if I'm mean to you, is that going to break the ice between us relationally? Because if it is, then let's get it out of the way sooner than later. And if not, and if my too muchness actually causes a, a fissure in the relationship six months or two years or six years down the road, it's going to feel like a betrayal and, and it's going to hurt. So I'd just rather be efficient with it now. So if there's eights in your life and they're pushing on you, they're 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 picking on you, they're 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 provoking you. Yes, that's not a, an appropriate way to, to to sort of test fidelity in friendships. But stand up for yourself and push back and, and call them out a little bit on that. Because when eights get called out, it feels like love. When eights get called out, it feels like, hey, trust is getting established. Trust is being built here. Now, eights are, are – are, they can be the biggest bullies, but they hate bullies. And, and there's this aspect of the eight that shows up as, as kind of activist, as kind of humanitarian, as, as kind of looking out for, for the underdog or, or somebody who's been hurt or, or oppressed or taken advantage of. And, and, and this is such an amazing aspect of eight structure, and it's one of the, the most beautiful ways that eight shows up in the world. But again, you, you see what's happening here. We're projecting outside of ourselves what we don't want to contend with inside of ourselves. And so it's easier to, to care for um, a, a child or an abandoned dog or um, a, a grandparent who who needs help than it is to take care of ourselves, to have compassion for ourselves, to to actually be gentle with our own inner child. And so for eights, your tenderness and your vulnerability, that's where your strength lies. That's actually not weak. Um, and and yes, that 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 may be taken advantage of, but aligning with that is is, is what the waking up path for the eight looks like. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, the, the authenticity piece of the eight mm -hmm. for me feels like a really important, um, characteristic right now. Cause I think, especially with what we're seeing play out on a global stage, there's so much misinformation. There's like mm -hmm. questions about what it is to be truthful. There's a lot of passive aggressiveness. Right. And so I just genuinely think that, um, having authenticity, whether it's positive or negative, is a really important tool um, in culture right now. And mm. so, yeah, I'm just like curious, you know, what your thoughts are, because I feel like so much destruction is happening when people don't tell the truth, when people 
decide, you know, I, I kind of have said to, you know, cause we've, I've been in a lot of conversations with people who have said, Oh, you know, the eight energy is a, is a lot, <laughs> you know, here and there, but, um, but they also, there's a, there's a, almost like, a a jealousy, uh, of it. Like, I wish I could be that, uh, maybe the word authentic is not the right word, but I wish I could like stand in my power. Maybe that's the the correct frame. Um, cause I think so many people are, are taught in culture, at least in, in Western culture, it's felt that way. And especially with, you know, for women, it's felt like we haven't really been, been told we, we could stand up and have, you know, a strong voice, um, and, and, and really share our truth with the world. And I think so much of like what's hidden underneath the surface is it comes out in other ways, right? Like it comes out in illness, it comes out in destruction of relationships, right? Like, as I think that the world abhors uh, a lack of truth, right? There's, there's something about that that I think is interesting to me because I can't help but not tell the truth, <laughs> like, like it or not. Um, and I try to be you know, in integrity as much as possible when I do share the truth. Um, so yeah, it's just been interesting to observe like how I show up as an eight. So the, the holy idea of the, of the Enneagram eight is actually called holy truth. And, and again, in, in the Enneagram personality overlay, there's a, a type component for all of us in this notion of a holy idea, right? Khamir Ali, he, he refers to the holy idea as um, an unobstructed view of reality. Um, my, my sense is your holy idea is the first truth that you have to tell yourself. And, and, and so you're right, for eights, like, the truth is important. In fact, we'll fight for the truth. And we often hear ourselves saying, I'm going to speak the truth in love, but the, the bummer is for a lot of eights, there's not a lot of love in the truth. There's a, a kind of asserting it. There's a kind of fighting for it or fighting with it. But you see, when you begin to connect with your your divine mind, with your your holy idea, and, and specifically as an eight, yes, you, you do begin to align with truth. And, and I think for the eights in particular, this, this truth is a sense of being rooted in love that we don't control love. And, 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 and in fact, we're not controlled by love, but we consent to it. We, we, we give over to it and we allow love then to guide what is true, good and beautiful in our lives and, and really in the world. But yeah, truth is, truth's important for the eights. And when we feel like we've been lied to, when we feel like we've been lied about, it, it really sort of shakes something out of us. And, and it really sort of in a sense, kind of awakens these these dragons in our ego and our shadow and our on our subconscious. And 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 this is part of the eight's sort of inner work. This is part of the eight's path to 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 make peace with the truth and to let the truth be a severe mercy and to let the truth guide us in in into that place of innocence, back to that place of of being vulnerable. Mm, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> And then the nine, and 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 so when we get to point nine, it's a bummer when we 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 go numerically around the circle because the nine actually sits at the top of the circle, right? And and it's thought that type nine is really the archetype of all human character structure. That basically we all just sort of fall off the right and the left side of of the nine, and and flow down this circle in a sense, diminishing the energy that's leaked by point nine. Because nine is 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 kind of this self-forgetting personality style. So the nine is sometimes called the peacemaker or the mediator. This is the the need to avoid. Nines are um incredibly low-key 
understanding people. They're um, really just incredible referees. They they understand everybody's position and, and, and they can almost in conflict communicate your position to the person you're in conflict with better than you could <laughs> ever state it. The bummer for the nines is they hate to pick a side because they understand everybody's side. Mm. Um, like I said, the nine has this sort of tendency to self-forget. And so the emotional passion of the nine is is called sloth. And it's not that nines are are, are lazy. It's that nines are, are, in a sense, fatigued from carrying this deep sense of understanding for everybody in their lives, almost at their own expense. And, and so at a certain point, they, they began to forget their own preferences, desires, wants, or needs. They, they kind of bundle them up and, and hide them in their shadow. This, this fatigue, it leads to a kind of uh, emotional lassitude for the nines, not an apathy. And, and you hear this a lot about nines, that they're perceived as apathetic. No, it's, it's a, an emotional lassitude. It's, I'm exhausted from carrying all of this in my heart for all of you. And so, yes, a, a nine takes this into their head at the end of the day and, and sort of flips off a switch and, and just drops into sort of a, a numbing out. And, and this numbing out, again, may look like sloth, but this is how the nine's coping with their their gift of of understanding of of carrying every position of of making room for every person in their life. Now, if you're a nine, or if you have people in your lives who are nines, their their communication style is really suggestive. And so I kind of joke around like, hey, if everybody's you know going to go out for 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 dinner together, and people start making you know, recommendations, like somebody's like, hey, I know this killer Thai spot, or hey, there's this incredible wood fire oven pizza spot down the street. A nine might say, does anybody like sushi rather than saying, hey, I love sushi because the nine doesn't want anybody to be left out. The nine <laughs> always wants everybody to be heard. The nine always wants everybody to be included. And, and it really is an amazing aspect of who they are. But it, again, perpetuates this sort of self-forgetfulness. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. And Chris, maybe we could just talk a little bit briefly about the wings. And I think for folks who are listening, uh, there are probably a lot of questions on each of these. So check out Chris's book, The Sacred Enneagram, if you want to learn a lot more about these types. There's actually a ton of information out there, um, but this is meant to be a high-level overview. And I, yeah, I'd love to just talk a little bit about the wings because for every uh, type that we identify as, we always have a wing. Um, so for example, you and I both happen to be an eight with a seven wing. So what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> so the eight with a seven wing is for the good or the bad of this, what's sometimes referred to as the double aggressive style. Um, or, you know, as seven with an eight wing would be referred to as the double assertive style. Um, your, your wing is the number sort of clockwise or counterclockwise to your type. Now, I, I, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I get a lot of emails and I get a lot of conversations where somebody will say, hey, I took an Enneagram test and it looks like I'm a six with a two wing or it looks like I'm a three with a seven wing. And and I hate to sort of say like that's impossible because, you know, the, the truth is we access the energies of all nine types within us. But really, your wing can only be the number beside your type. So if you're a one, that means you could be a one with a nine wing or, or a one with a two wing. And this is where the Enneagram sort of looks like a, a color wheel, that you kind of blend into the numbers beside you and that you borrow some of their personality styles or personality traits. Now, the the, the theories in the Enneagram are just um, 
Look, the professional community, it's made up of incredible, incredible people, but it's not always been that way. It's historically notorious for kind of being a cantankerous bunch of folks who, who really sort of postured around their theories. And in my, my second book, The Enneagram of Belonging, I decided to, to sort of try to honor the traditions by, let's say, harmonizing all of these different ideas. And so I tackle nine theories of the wings. And I think, you know what, if, if you believe in any of them, great, work with it, as long as it sort of supports your, your journey of becoming. And when it stalls or when it's not helpful anymore, there's another way to look at your wings. But I, I like to think of this. One of my teachers, Michael Goldberg, this this um, mythologist who who actually sees the Enneagram and the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and in a lot of Greek mythology, he says that your clockwise wing is your ally point, right? So, you know, for you and me as 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 eights, our our nine wing is an ally point. It's where we reach to sort of pull the best out of ourselves that's maybe lost or forgotten. Or as an eight, that would help actually sort of bring balance and tenderness to that eight structure. Now, Michael Goldberg also says that your counterclockwise wing is your shadow point. And this is where you hide some of the very best of yourself. And this is where you hide things from who hide hide who you are from from who you're becoming. And so for us as eights with a seven wing, that that allows us to reach to that levity, that playfulness, that 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 sort of innocence and curiosity that actually lets that inner child sort of grow up at, at a reasonable and, and healthy pace. Now, I, I'll i say this, for types threes, six, and nines, these are sometimes referred to as the anchor points or, or the revolutionary types. In the drawing of the Enneagram, these three types connect the, the, the triangle in the middle of the circle. And it's it's understood that often the three, six, and nine may not have a pronounced or developed wing. So if you don't feel like you have a strong wing, you know, you don't have to force it. Um, one of my teachers says that we, we we generally exercise one of these wings for the first half of life and that the second half of life we develop the other one. Um, my sense is we, we kind of sit loosely or fluidly between these wings and we can access the energies of these types on our wings when it serves us, when it helps us actually grow up and wake up, when it helps us actually find inner healing or, or when it helps us sort of tether to, to the present. But yeah, this is just one more way that the system here sort of starts to, to define the complexities and, and what makes us interesting and, and different and beautiful. That it's not simply there's there's nine buckets that we get dropped into and, and we have to figure out which one of those, which one of those it is. Mm. So Chris, one other thing I wanted to ask before we move on from kind of like the definitions um, is the, and I might be getting this wrong. So I'm going to ask the question, but of course, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, So the triads or triads, I guess it's pronounced that way. So I was told that as an eight, the kind of side that I go to when I guess I'm at my lowest or when I'm triggered is a two. Uh, what is that? What does that mean? Can you say more about that? Okay. So, so yeah, there's, um, so there, we're kind of crossing components here. Um, the triads in the Enneagram are, are the different ways that types get broken up into sets of three. And so the first and, 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 and really the most basic of these triads is referred to as your centers of intelligence. And so this puts types twos, threes, and fours in the heart. 
types five, six, and sevens in the head and types eights, nines, and ones in the body. And what you learn about the heart types is that they're, they're deeply concerned with comparisons and, and connections. And, and connection is really the fundamental social need there for the heart types. The head types, they're, they're, they're really concerned with competencies and being competent and honoring competencies. And their fundamental social need is, is really security and um, stability. And, and then for the body types, eights, nines, and ones, this group, this triad is, is really concerned with control, needing to be in control or not being in, not being controlled. And, and, and this is hard for non-body types to understand, but our fundamental social need is really autonomy. It's being honored. It's, it's, it's actually being given some space. And for heart types who want connection, autonomy doesn't feel like a social need. But you see, when eights, nines, and ones have that autonomy and that autonomy is recognized, then our hearts open up. Then we make those, those deep connections. Now, there's so many more triads. There's the Hornavian groups, and that puts types ones, twos, and sixes together. That puts types sevens, eights, and threes together. That puts types fours, fives, and nines together. And what this Hornavian sort of triad or, 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 or overlay points to is, is a number of things. For example, our time orientation, right? So ones, twos, and sixes are, are present-oriented. Sevens, eights, and threes are future-oriented. Fours, fives, and nines are past-oriented. This, this triad also shows us what our repressed center of intelligence is. So for sevens, eights, and threes, we repress our, our heart center. We, we don't know what to think about our feelings. We're not emotionally fluent as, as other types. For fours, fives, and nines, that repressed center of intelligence is the body. And, and for ones, twos, and sixes, that repressed center of intelligence is, is, is the head or, or, or the thinking. Um, you know, these this Hornavian group also shows us how we go about getting our fundamental social needs met. Um, and, and, and it just keeps going and gets wonkier and nerdier and, and more and more interesting. Um, another one of these triads is called the, the, the harmony groups. And so this puts types twos, fives, and eights together as rejection types, but, but people who deeply care about relationships, it puts threes, sixes, and nines together as pragmatists that attach to the, to the very things that are, are, are functioning and work in their life, but also attached to the things that are lost in their lives. And then it puts ones, fours, and sevens together as frustrated idealists. Um, I mean, we could just keep doing this. We could just keep breaking the Enneagram out into sets of three. There's conflict avoidance and, and reconciliation styles. And that's a, a another triad sometimes called the harmonic groups. So this is, for me, one of the ways I think the Enneagram proves itself. I, I, I sometimes say that it's a fractal of triads, that you continue to break these nine types up into sets or clusters of three and it just shows itself again and again and again it proves itself and that's for me really interesting i mean i think the the the, the more tools we have to sort of self-observe the more tools we have to self-correct the the, the 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 clearer that pathway inward towards divine love looks now sorry that was on triads what <laughs> you kind of referenced were these crisscrossing lines inside the circle. And when you look at the Enneagram, there's all of these pathways that connect the numbers. So eights are connected to type two and type five. And 
again, in the Enneagram of Belonging, in, in, in my last book, I, I, I tackled the nine different theories of what these pathways look like. But yes, the, 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 in the early days, folks would have said that you have a path of integration, that when you're centered, when you're grounded, when you're doing well, you reach to one of these types and borrow the positive traits of it. And then you have this so-called path of disintegration, that when you're losing your way, when you're unhealthy, you reach to another type and you borrow the low-level manipulation tactics of that type. And, and I would say this, when you find your type, and when you look at the drawing of the Enneagram and you see those crisscrossing lines in the circle, yes, I, I imagine all of this could be could have memory of when I'm healthy, I do have a tendency to, to, to express a little bit of this type's energy. And when I'm unhealthy, I sure do have some tendency to express that type's energy. But my sense is we, we can reach to both of these numbers, the so-called path of integration, the so-called path of disintegration. And, and find gifts in there and, and find coping mechanisms in there. It, it's like ski poles. You, you need both of them to speed up and to slow down. You need both of them to, to sort of pivot and to turn. And, and again, this is what's great about the Enneagram. It, it, it reminds you you're, you're not simply one of these numbers, but where your soul, let's say, lands on the circle, it, it's just the starting point. You, you have access to so many other energies to help your own sort of journey home or inward or, or towards love. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, one of the things you say in your book is, uh, saying that I identify as, and, you know, type, like, for example, I, I identify as a type eight, as opposed to just saying I'm an eight, because mm -hmm. like you mentioned, yeah, of course, like there's a, there's a lot of ways that are, are, um, I guess soul and spirit shows up in this uh, in this space. So, thanks for explaining the that the eight five two for me because I I love the disintegration and integration piece because I see parts of me when I disintegrate I do go into like the helper mode. <laughs> so just interesting to to note that, Chris. We've spent so much time just defining the enneagram, and I had so many more questions just to talk about other pieces of the Enneagram, but I know we're coming towards um, time. So if you don't mind, I'd love to just ask maybe two more questions uh, before we wrap up. And I think one thing I'd love to get a sense from you, because you've been doing this work and working with a lot of different people, like how can knowing the Enneagram help people grow and understand themselves and understand their relationships better? And maybe you can even give us an example of how uh, using the Enneagram has transformed uh, a relationship. Sure. So I, I, if I don't say this a hundred times, I feel like I haven't said it enough, but if we can't self-observe, we can't self-correct. And I think what the Enneagram offers is, is really kind of a, a gentle mirror to look inward. And, and, you know, this is what happens when somebody first comes across the Enneagram, they get so excited because it's like, this sort of describes all of these things that I've always maybe subconsciously or intuitively known about myself, but I didn't have framework or, or structure for. And, and it can be really exciting. But there also gets this, we also get to this point in our Enneagram journeys where we're, we're, we're devastated, maybe humiliated by the unobserved aspects of, of ego structure. And, and so when we can bring compassion into this sort of gaze of, of self, when we can bring compassion into this sort of exploration, let's say, of the uncharted interior landscapes of our own egos, then yes, we, we find love, levity, we, we find acceptance, and we find love. 
and when we can love ourselves well, then then we can love others better. And 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 I think for for a lot of us, maybe how folks were 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 socialized in religious communities, this this sense of self love seemed narcissistic or selfish, or you know, putting yourself first did not sort of add up to the let's say the algebra of some of our religious or faith traditions. But like I said, if if we don't love ourselves well, then then we don't know how to love someone else, and and that's that's tragic. So I, I would say, you know, looking back over my life, like the Enneagram actually provides incredible. It's an incredible map for for navigating relationships. It, it shows us how all of these different type energies sort of work well together. It shows us it's the it's the cheat sheet for for the challenges that we're going to face. And in particular, my 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 wife Felina, she's a type 2. Um it, it's been an incredible grace for us in navigating sort of this energy between a, a, an overly protective type which uh, you know that's that's common for 8s with an overly nurturing type which is is common for 2s and how over the course of, of of the last 25 years, that's led to really unhealthy fusion, and and we've carried things for each other that we we didn't need to, and and then disabled ourselves from having to do that for ourselves. But it also shows us how these two types come together and and, and can really complement or support each other's becoming uh, awakening, and and it shows us, like I was saying earlier these conflict avoidance and conflict resolution styles. And, you know, as an eight, yes, uh, I have a long path of, of, of folks that have been hurt by me. And, and, and I think it wasn't until really understanding the heart of the two that I could understand the depth of some of the pain that I've caused in terms of understanding these conflict avoidance styles. It's helped me realize that so many of the fights that we have are almost never about the fight, but, tragically how we got into the fight and so these conflict resolution styles show us how to actually honor ourselves and each other better and 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 it, we i mean we could just have a whole nother show on on one single aspect of the enneagram and relationships because you get incredible and sensible and good-hearted people together and it's still so hard and then when you can sort of look through the prism or the lens of type structure you start to see how it doesn't have to be as hard as it's always been or sometimes feels. So I, I love the Enneagram. I, I mean, I've been working on this idea of uh, Enneagram apology styles and how different types need to hear apologies and how different types lead with, with apologies that they think are going to be heard. And again, it's just this tragic dance of, of missteps and missing each other. But man, I, I just, I love this thing. It's, it's, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that it changes everything because I don't think anything changes everything. I don't think religious conversion changes everything. This is why people grow up in faith communities with folks who've changed their minds about beliefs, but they still might be racist or they don't recycle. So so I don't want to overplay this. This isn't going to change everything. But man, it, it sure gets close or as close to anything I've ever come across. Yeah. And, and you know, it's so interesting. I was um, talking to a friend recently and I think so much of culture is all about like intelligence, but I think we're moving to a space where 
you know, self, self-awareness is actually most, one of the most important skill sets to have moving forward when it comes to work, when it comes to your personal relationship. So I think that's so powerful. And Chris, I'm wondering if you could also share like what has surprised you the most on this journey? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I, I think when I first learned the Enneagram, like I said, it was just about cliches and quirks and, and just reducing people down to sort of the most obvious components of, of their personality and then dropping them in a bucket. And I think what surprised me over the years working with the Enneagram is that it, it, it doesn't, there's no end to the mystery of who we are. There's, there's no like packaged, uh, tidy or sort of here I'll end all way of summing an individual up. What we learn is, is that we are mysteries that are unfolding, perpetually unfolding. And, and, and that's what, what makes us beautiful. And that's what makes something about the Enneagram for me exciting because it allows for, for mystery to just continue to grow. Now, I, I, I think what that also leads to is, and I think this was a huge surprise for me that like Father Richard Rohr says, that everything belongs and that we do have to learn to make room for the good and bad in us and that there's compassion and acceptance for all of us and that we we can't have only those things or attributes about ourselves that we think are positive without realizing that there's a shadow even to them. And, and the Enneagram will, will allow for you to find compassion for those things that you've hidden in your shadow. And then I think what surprises us is that allows for us to have compassion for for those in our life that we find difficult, for those in our life who, who've hurt us, for those in our life who, who've let us down, because we're all in this sort of same human condition, and we're all just hopefully stumbling home and, and finding our way. And so I love it. I, I, I really, I, I just, I love it. And I'm lucky that um, this gets to be part of my work and part of my life, and 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 I'm grateful. So thanks so much for for creating space for this conversation. Uh, yeah, me and likewise, I think um, I'm very interested in the Enneagram, and I have a lot of people in my own community who have been studying it for many many years. And I think like like you said, it's kind of a never ending journey um, mm. of the internal internal self. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for writing all your books and creating so much content for us to understand ourselves better. And are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you? Maybe share the book titles again as well. Sure. I, if, if you're just getting started on this, I, I think the wisdom of the Enneagram by Russ Hudson and his late professional partner, Don Riso is a really good starting point. Um, in my book, the Enneagram, or let's let let me say this: the sacred Enneagram is sort of where I I want to start the conversation, and so it's 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 a not an advanced introduction, but it's a little bit more of a thoughtful introduction, I would say, than than a lot of the books that are out there. But my second book, the Enneagram of Belonging, that's where I really just try to press some of the stuff deep into our souls, deep into our psyche, deep into our instinctual intelligence and, and, and sort of show a, a way of, of really learning to belong to ourselves so that we can belong to each other so that ultimately we can belong to the world and, and help bring whatever our gift is to help heal the world. Mm. 
Yeah. And uh, just one thing to say about the sacred Enneagram as well, um, what that you opened up with um, a comment, uh, dis- or trying to establish a distinction between dignity and identity. And I just thought that mm. was so powerful. Um, maybe we'll just leave that there so that folks can go buy your book and learn more about that <laughs> uh, as a little bit of a teaser. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Chris. This has just been so fascinating and so interesting. And, uh, you know, we only really sc- scratched the surface. So uh, hopefully maybe we can have you on again and do more of a deeper dive on some other areas of the Enneagram. Yeah. And thank you for what you're doing. It's it's really important work. And thank you for for who you are. I mean, it's 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 not... It's uncommon to find such radiant people who are intentionally out there trying to to make the world better. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate that so much. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the Enneagram as a tool to understanding personality. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.